Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Podcast. Syndrome. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. The Neverland Podcast, Episode 26. Alrighty, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time it is for you, and welcome once again to the Neverland Podcast. I am your host as always, Jeremy, and we have a very special episode for you today. Today, uh, I would not say in honor of Maleficent, but in, uh, let's say, conjunction uh, with the Disney film Maleficent just having opened this weekend, we're doing a villain spectacular. So, of course, we're going to have a nice discussion about villains of all types, from books, video games, whatever, uh, with some good friends here, uh, Tracy and Scott from the Disney Indiana Podcast. You've been hearing their promos. In fact, you heard one in front of this very show. They have joined me for what's for today. It's going to be part one of what turned out to be a two-part conversation about some of our favorite villains. Uh, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy that. Also today, uh, I'm going to keep it kind of short with what I'm, what I'm going to say because uh, it's a very long conversation. And I don't want to keep you uh, with a too long of a podcast to listen to. 
Uh, so I'm only going to cover one little news topic here today, and it's something that I thought was very interesting and fits very well with our theme of discussing villains today. Now, this very exciting news I have for you is that Josh Brolin has been cast as the voice of Thanos for Guardians of the Galaxy coming out August 1st. Uh, Josh Brolin, you will probably know him for playing Bran, the older brother in The Goonies, uh, for a a very spot-on Tommy Lee Jones impression in MIB3, Men in Black 3. Uh, And I'm also very excited to hear his interpretation of the Mad Titan. Thanos has appeared at the very end of The Avengers, uh, but will have a larger role in the Guardians of the Galaxy film, uh, and apparently, I guess maybe the teaser, some of the quick shots I've heard, maybe you might be able to spot him. Uh, That's at least what I'm hearing, but uh, I haven't spotted him myself. Uh, Now, Josh Whedon has said that the Avengers are building up to face him in the third phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is fantastic, Uh, and basically what he was kind of saying is like since the Avengers are kind of a they're still kind of meshing a bit as a team so he's still kind of you know playing with some ideas on that with the second film uh, they won't be quite ready I guess to face him until the third film and they'll probably have a few more uh, members on the roster should be a very interesting thing now I know that's not a whole lot of the, the typical news that I normally would have but uh, as fate would have it my internet connection is down so I'm just trying to get this thing recorded and I'm going to upload it as soon as I get a chance but that's okay I have a lot of a long content here for that conversation uh, that I have coming up but I, I still also have some other things to do for you here like a review of the current Disney film uh, Maleficent that uh, just came out um now, because I did not like this movie, and I'm trying to keep this as a positive thing, I'm going to go through and uh, say what I would have changed, what I would have done differently, what they did not do in this film, things that I think would have actually made it to where I liked the movie. Uh, and in this fashion, I should be able to keep this very spoiler-free for you. Now, I was not really intending to like the movie when I got in there because from what I've been seeing and hearing, it seemed like Maleficent was the hero and King Stefan was the bad guy. I was hoping that was not going to be the case. <clears throat> well, okay, now, the, I, I actually did a review already uh, in the car like I normally would do on the way home from the movie. Um, well, we didn't go straight home. We had things to do. But normally in the car, Heather and I will discuss the movie. But uh, Heather thought I was I was kind of upset at the time, and it was going to sound like a horrible rant. And I thought, well, all right, maybe I could try again. Because um, I I was starting to like the movie well, in, the, in the theater. I was kind of enjoying it, I, and I had some ideas of where the movie could be going. But I thought, well, that's, that's different, but that's enjoyable. I like that. This could be good. Uh, but the last 20 minutes of the film, it completely ruined what I, what I had hoped the movie could have been. Um, now, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but let me tell you a little bit about some of the backstory they give in the film uh, Maleficent. Uh, and I will say, though, the performance by Angelina Jolie as Maleficent, uh, she was very good. I, I think all the acting was good. The special effects was good visually. Uh, this was a great-looking uh, film, uh, wonderful visuals, great-looking kind of creatures and stuff. Uh, but anyway, the basic setup is there's two kingdoms, and they've kind of had issues with each other. There's in the moors, there's the fairies, and then there's these humans in this kingdom. And they have not really been able to get along. It's and it, it seems to be presented that the humans are kind of afraid to go into those woods. Uh, that is that information is given to us, but it also is given to us that this king at this one time is greedy for some power that he thinks lurks there and wants to go in there and get it. But uh, we go at the beginning of this, we see Maleficent as a young girl, and she meets a young human by the name of Stefan, and they become friends. 
And as it kind of goes through and, you know, shows that around by the time Maleficent is 16, there's kind of a romance that kind of blossoms between the two of them. Uh, as they become adults, though, they kind of fall away. Uh, Stefan gets called, you know, she doesn't know exactly what else is going to him, but uh, part of her story is like that he, he became ambitious. Uh, this, this movie seems to treat ambition as a bad thing, and you, you must be greedy if you're trying to make anything of yourself. Well, that's a whole different issue. Um... Well, as it turns out, as adults, of course, now uh, the current king, who's an older king, comes along and, of course, has is, is got an army with him and he, like, he wants to enter the Moors. And now, uh, apparently, he's trying to want to take the power, so Maleficent comes out to kind of defend things. Now, had I been... This story could have been very different, I suppose, if she had stopped and had been saying, well, hey, you know, there's no reason for you to fear any of us here in the Moors. We're not your enemies. Uh, and maybe they could have been friends there because uh, if you believe what they're trying to sell you for what Maleficent wants, she's trying to be at peace. But she doesn't really trust humans. She thinks they're all greedy, ambitious, and stuff like that anyway. But that seems to be the thing that she wants to have peace with the humans. But she doesn't act that way when she picks the fight right there. Um, well, in the process, she wounds the king. The king puts out a decree. Uh, well, not a complete decree, but he's talking to these guys because I guess he's only got a daughter. He says, okay, well, uh, I need to pick someone to become the king and to, to marry my daughter so he has a place for the throne. Now, Stefan's around at the time, and basically what the king says, this uh, this fairy with the big wings that wounded me, I want someone to kill her. Now, here's, here's where I would have done something different. Here is, okay, I, I can at least say because you, if you've seen the trailer, uh, Maleficent's wings get stolen. Now, of course, Stefan is the one who does this. That is kind of an important thing. Now, uh, how I would have played this out, and I would have thought would have been a better movie, is maybe Maleficent doesn't know what's going on. I mean, he does warn her, say, hey, you know, I wanted to warn you that the king is trying to kill you because he's supposed to be friends with her. Uh, and so it would have made sense to me if he'd have taken her wings and, and tried to fake her death with it. Which he does. He didn't fake her death. But the reason he could have had to do that was to try to protect her from being killed or anyone else coming out after her. That would have made sense. He was supposed to be her friend. But that's not, of course, what they went with. They went with the ambition he was trying to become king. So then years, you know, times comes later. Maleficent, now without her wings, has become quite angry, quite bitter. Um, the, the typical stuff you expect from the Sleeping Beauty story happens with the curse. They do not have her let the third of the fairies, which they renamed uh, Meriwether, uh, Forlar, and Fauna into weird names that are completely unmemorable. Uh, the characters weren't even dumb. Anyway, they were kind of fun, but they made them dumb. Uh, but they were still enjoyable. I still like those characters. I, mean, I like them better in the cartoon, no? Um, but they treat them as that uh, even Maleficent thinks they're stupid. But see, here the interesting thing is they are trying to make friends with the humans in the kingdom by coming to bless the birth of the new baby princess. And they're trying to say, you know, we, we want to be able to be friends with the humans. Well, isn't that what Maleficent is supposed to want? But she thinks it's awful she's doing that. But, of course, it makes sense because Maleficent has changed. She has become quite kind of evil. Her anger and hatred has kind of messed with her. So she's not the nice person she was. And it does even at least show that everybody in her moors are afraid of her. Uh, but, of course, so things play out where she has, of course, cursed the daughter... Uh, Aurora. Aurora is taken away, not given the name Briar Rose to hide her, though. I did note that. But she's taken away, of course, by the three fairies to take on a human form. Uh, so everything kind of goes on there. Stefan, of course, as you know in Sleeping Beauty, does take all the spinning wheels and, and is burning them all. And, uh, of course, sends his men out to find and hunt down Maleficent. Maleficent, of course, to hide herself. She does create a big thorn bush type of thing, but not around the castle. No, she does it around her own moors to try to keep people out. Uh, but, of course, now... 
what what we're being thought to think is that, of course, he wants to go after Maleficent specifically because she, he she just cursed his daughter to go into a sleep like death. Not all three of the fairies got to do their their blessings. Only two of them. They never got around to the third one for some reason. But uh, Maleficent, because she doesn't believe in true love, goes ahead and does that. Well, she can come out of the sleep if she finds a true love. But it has shown both Stefan and Maleficent, neither one of them believe in true love anymore. Uh, which now, okay, in a typical Disney fashion, that they that should be changed, right? By the end, you know, true love is supposed to save all in a good a good fairy tale, and especially in a Disney fairy tale. That I would have been acceptable to that. Uh, okay, so the story kind of goes on where Maleficent, of course, is going to meet Aurora. She's going to regret what she did. So we have potential for a good redemption story, and they they sort of kind of did, where Maleficent kind of you know try even tries to take her own curse away. She's unable to. Then you have where Prince Philip has his five minutes of screen time. Uh, to where Maleficent's going to try to use him to save uh, Aurora after she's fallen into the sleep because the curse is going to play itself out somehow. Um, now, they did something different for how Aurora is going to count out of sleep, but I don't want to tell you how they did it. Uh, but here's how I think they should have done it. Uh, I would have liked to have seen, if this was going to be a story of forgiveness and redemption, and maybe both sides between Maleficent and Stefan could admit that in their anger... They did a lot of things wrong. Neither one of them really admit to it, but Maleficent is given the chance to oh, fix her mistake or whatever to some degree, but she really doesn't. Uh, she she, she kind of changes and becomes kind of more like her old self. Stefan isn't given that chance. He is supposed to just be this evil, wicked king. Uh, now, see, I would have liked to have seen a reconciliation where she could have apologized for the curse and saying, you know, I'm sorry, I was angry and, and mad about you taking my wings, and I really didn't mean for this to happen. And to where Stefan could have said, well, I, I only took your wings, I'm sorry, I did it, I did, I was, th I was thinking I was protecting you, and I guess it was really wrong of me to do it that way. And then, you know, you know what, that could have been good, and... Since the, the, the curse was supposed to be, be removed only by true love's kiss, why couldn't their love have been a true love from before when they were teenagers and they could have been rekindled because the queen was at this time dead? Now, that would have made a good movie. Everybody, you know, a good happy ending, you know, and everybody's fixed and apologizes for what they've done. I mean, if you want to have Maleficent where she's not fully evil, maybe that would have been a good angle to tank. Unfortunately, that is not the direction this movie goes. That last 20 minutes... Uh, was horrible. I did not like the direction it went, and that is what ruined the movie for me. So hopefully I haven't really spoiled anything for this if you still are intending to go, but I highly recommend you don't go because you will probably get your hopes up and then when that last 20 minutes you will probably be like me thinking, really? Is that how this is going to play out? <laughs> not happy about it. Uh, and it does still fall into the direction of where Disney seems to be going with some of their fairy tales where uh, no, no, it was, was kind of neat and frozen, kind of a little different to have her sister save her, you know, considering Elsa and Anna, that was different, okay. But, you know, there's, there's, you can, you can go to that well too far into where it doesn't work, you know, but it seems just so much to where men have to be despicable or evil or something really wrong with them or, or dismissive, you know, we can't have any interesting male characters and we cannot have a man come and save us, no, because that would just be horrible. I was like, what would be so horrible about doing what fairy tales have done? It is, you know, we we have an equal role in things. We don't have to downplay one gender to, to bring the other one up, do we? It seems Disney is trying to want to make more princess films uh, and push their princesses and everything for, for the girls, thinking they've got Marvel and Star Wars that it's only going to appeal to the boys. Well, okay, they're wrong. Superheroes, you know, Marvel, Star Wars, there are girls who are into that too. You can play both sides to both audiences and not try to play to a specific gender you can just make good quality movies that everyone will enjoy and everyone will be happy
But it seems with Maleficent they were trying to play maybe make the girls feel empowered in some fashion, uh, but they didn't manage to tell a good story in the process. So I'm giving it two thumbs down. This is the first bad movie review I've had to give on Neverland. But the, there are some things, like I said, that if they'd have just done some things different, that it would have been a better story, and um, I would have enjoyed it then. Um, but that's the that's my story right now, and I'm sticking to it. But now I've talked for 15 minutes, and I've got about 45 minutes now of a good villain conversation that I had with Tracy and Scott from Disney, Indiana. And I know you're going to enjoy it. Uh, so here it comes. All right, Neverlanders. Uh, so by now you will have heard my review of Maleficent. I'm just going to hope that at the point that you're hearing this in the show that I liked it, although I... Right now, I'm sitting with my doubts because it seems like they've turned the villain into the hero, and that's kind of weird to me. But hopefully you've heard me liking that, but as typical Neverland style, we do things in reverse order, and uh, so the last feature you heard is actually the first thing I'm recording for the week, but we have two special guests. Now, you've heard me hearing their... I've been playing their promo for weeks now. These two goofy people that come up mentioning off all these Marvel and Star Wars characters that have this little place called Disney Indiana, which you will never find on a map. Well, they're here. It is Scott and Tracy Morris. Say hello. 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 Well, they are here because we are going to... We have met now in a secret underground bunker somewhere in Disney, Indiana. And we are putting together our team of villains, which was we will conquer the rest of the world. And putting into the slave. They're, they're tired of being the high muckety-mucks of Disney, Indiana. And we're, we've got the world on our minds now. That's right. I always wanted to be a crime fighter in one. Well, yes. And, well, you know, Mortis has already uh, gotten himself in, apparently, with a few, a bit of that Disney underworld type of people uh, we've been hearing. And I've already vanquished him. Oh, well. Now we just have to put together our own team, and we'll uh, expand and do what he wasn't able to do. Perhaps we can extend that little smuggling ring for Mickey Bars. Unfortunately, I can't get him past him, because he just keeps eating them. Uh, but that, of course, is his payment for being on our show, so it works out. And for anyone who didn't understand a bit of that, then why aren't you listening to Disney Indiana? Because then that would have made complete sense. Yep, just check us out <laughs> DisneyIndiana.com. And you guys have a couple of other shows you work with also? Well, I'm also a regular on the 1951downplace.com podcast, which is your home for Hammer Films discussion. Me and uh, Casey and Derek, two friends of mine, are... Taking each month, we're taking a Hammer film uh, from Hammer Studios in the UK and uh, doing our little review of it. Casey and Derek are uh, very big Hammer fans, and they've watched a lot of these movies. Me, I'm the newbie on that show, and um, they get to see the films through new eyes by my review of it. So we sit down, we just kind of talk about the history of the film, and then we give our own little plot synopsis and uh, review of it. And that can be found by simply searching. I always get the numbers messed up, though. Yeah, 1951 Down Place. 1951 um, Down Place. Yep. Uh, you can search that in iTunes or 1951downplace, all one word, dot com. Awesome. And uh, the Monster Kid Radio, that's you guys kind of sometimes guest star on that, but that's not actually one of you guys doing the show. That's Yeah, that's, that's a podcast that both Scott and I have appeared on in the past. It's run by our friend Derek M. Cook. And the, he celebrates the best and not so, what is it, the, oh, it celebrates the great and not so great genre films of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yep, and just this week, um, I was on his show talking about the giant Gila monster from 1959 and its remake 
Gila from 2010. <laughs> Which sounds like some sort of weird, something you'd find on the sci-fi channel. <laughs> Uh, Gila, I think, was uh, the giant Gila monster was um, from from the fifties, well before Sci-Fi Channel. It was actually made by a guy, uh, produced by a guy that owned some drive-ins that was looking for some um, product for his screens. However, it has also appeared as an episode on Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Of course. <laughs> okay, but there's some other podcasts that everybody go check out and everything because that I'm, I've only listened to Disney Indiana and a little bit of the Morning's Matinee. And uh, those are both fun. Uh, I'll have to check into the downplace one. I've been kind of curious about the Hammer Films one because some of those, and we'll actually probably mention some of the actors that uh, are famous for being in Hammer Films like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee because they've played some pretty good villains. Uh, and I know I've got, did I write down? Any, I didn't write down any of their villains. I've got a long list of villains to go through. But we're going to try and, and try to each go through five in kind of a round-robin style. And I've got a bunch of honorable mentions. I was trying really hard to pick out villains that might be unique that maybe you guys wouldn't already have picked out, being that you're also James Bond and Trekkie fans. Uh, so <laughs> we'll have some honorable mentions for anyone we didn't quite get to. We'll go ahead and throw them out, and we'll probably be able to talk about them because the honorable mentions are actually really big-name villains that I was just trying to let you guys be able to bring up instead of me. But we'll just do ladies first, and we'll let Tracy go first. All right, well... Um I've always been interested in science fiction. That's kind of where I, I got interested in movies and been reading books ever since I was a kid. So I'm going to kick things off with the Martians from War of the Worlds. However, my introduction to this story is not the most common one. Most people are familiar with it from maybe the 1963 film. or 1953. Sorry, I was looking right at it too. The 1953 film. Or the 1938 radio broadcast. But my parents actually introduced me to the War of the Worlds via the 1978 concept album by Jeff Wayne. Whoa. Of ELO. And we're not going to mention the Tom Cruise um, version of War of the Worlds. No. I didn't see that one. I guess it's that bad, huh? You're not missing a whole lot. You're not missing anything, yes. So far, I've only heard uh, like an. There was an audio book I've listened to, uh, to that was the completed story. Then I've also heard, of course, the Orson Welles, which I actually have a copy of that audio that I found on the internet. Won't see if I got it the right way or not. We'll, ju we'll just say I found it. <laughs> the 1953 film. I actually did a, an episode of Monster Kid Radio where I talked with Derek about that. And interestingly enough, the Martians are number 27 on America, the American Film Institute AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains wow. list that they published back uh, 2005, I think. And that, that concept album that Tracy talked about with Jeff Wayne, if you're a fan of 70s music. Yeah, prog rock. Prog rock. It is very good. She, she turned me on to it. I had not heard it until... Uh, she and I started dating, and it was one of the things that she uh, introduced me to. So, highly recommended. It's a very good album. Well, Richard Burton is the narrator, and Justin Hayward of Moody Blues does some of the songs. But it's a combination of narration taken mostly from the H.G. Wells book, and then some songs written around it. Hmm. And I know I've heard that name before. The guy you mentioned as the uh, the narrator wasn't he in Camelot? Yes, very famous actor, Richard Burton. Yeah, I cannot think of who he played. I've only seen like half of that movie. 
<laughs> I'm going to watch the rest of one of these days. Okay, you know, I, I actually, part of my brain was thinking when you said, you know, I was into sci-fi, which is how I got interested, and I was thinking, it would be so funny if you said, that's how I got interested in Scott. He's <laughs> <laughs> occasionally alien. Occasionally? I'll try harder. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's something else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add something to my list for an honorable mention, though, too. Okay. <laughs> so moving on for uh, Scott. Now, of course, we're not presenting these in any particular order because it's difficult to do a countdown because somebody, somebody's always going to jump in and say, why would you rank that above that? So we just list out our team of who we're going to conquer the world with. So, Scott, who's who you got do you want to line up first? Well, I'm going to start in the sci-fi action genre. Uh, one of my favorite films is from 1987. RoboCop. Oh, yeah. And my villain from that film that I really like is Clarence Boddicker, played by Kerwood Smith. Mm-hmm. Which always seems odd, you know, when I started watching that 70s show to see um, Clarence Boddicker as the dad. <laughs> the Knicks got a game tonight. <laughs> but uh, just the way that he, you know, he's this street thug, uh, leader of the gang, but, I mean, he doesn't even care about his own gang. At one time, at one point in the film, one of his uh, gang members gets shot, and he looks at him and he says, can you fly? And he throws him out the back of a truck, a moving truck. <laughs> yep. Love that piece of work. Yep. So that's that's uh, one of the ones that I chose. Uh, that's a good one. I hadn't thought of that. I was That was one of the things that was unfortunate with the, the new RoboCop. I liked it, but it, there was no Clarence Boddicker. <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of remakes, so I've not sat down to watch that one yet. You'd probably be pleasantly surprised. Uh, I was, I wasn't sure kind of where they were going to go with it. They were a little, uh, little weird on how they tried to tie it back over to uh, to OCP in the end to make Michael Keaton the, the villain in the end. But it, it kind of gave a different take on things and tried to make him a little bit more human to where you could follow him a little bit. So you get really emotionally attached, and it was actually pretty good. I was impressed. Yeah, I've heard good things about it and how um, they really you know, try to make Murphy a lot more human yeah. than than the original one, which was more of a social commentary on, on the way of the world, the way Verhoeven was um, showing the excess of uh, people with the, with the cars and then those great uh, s- s- satiric uh, commercials. Oh, I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that and of course the home game of nuclear war. <laughs> <laughs> Which now you watch it, and it's like, wow, this is ridiculous. But <laughs> yes. but uh, I, I I still love the original RoboCop. Um, I actually have the. The Criterion Collection, which is an unrated, the original version, and it is um, unrated for very good reasons. <laughs> yeah, uh, that that was a pretty hard R back in the day. <laughs> yes, and in, in, in the scene when Murphy gets shot up is uh, it's, hard to watch. It's hard to watch. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I can imagine it's pretty hard to watch even in the uh, regular rated R version. So, yep, Clarence Boddicker is the first one that I wanted to mention. That's a good one on the list. Okay, now I'm going to go into the realm where I know best. And I'm I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because this is almost a twofer. But it's all in how I put this. Uh, but, okay, I'm calling this the alien symbiote, which loosens it up and everything. And this will actually tie into something that you'll probably get a kick out of. Okay, so this actually is a comic book villain. Uh, of course, from the Spider-Man universe, because uh, I'm a huge Spidey nut. 
Uh, and this kind of goes way back to uh, back in the 80s. There was this event that was the Secret Wars, uh, where all these heroes uh, were basically it was like a big chess match between two weird uh, elder god kind of things or whatever. But in the process of things, Spider-Man's costume, he didn't have it, and he needed something, and so they found this kind of black material, and they made a costume, didn't realize it was alive until later when he got back on Earth and it started trying to take over his mind and uh, Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four had to take it off of him but uh, it eventually he did kind of use, start using the suit and he had it back until he realized he really needed to get it off and then as was seen in Spider-Man 3 he was trying to get it off and he had to go up on top of this bell tower and rattle the bells and the Sonics actually managed to help him get the costume off of him waiting down below though was this guy Eddie Brock who was somebody who was he was a reporter at the Daily Bugle who actually had lied to try to help get a, a better position and uh, Peter Parker had exposed the, the, the story that he had written was false and so of course Eddie Brock hates Peter Parker for that he cost him his job he's blacklisted with every newspaper in New York he'll never work again and so of course with this big hate between the alien symbiote being rejected and Eddie Brock who is lost everything for its own fault became Venom so there's your first encounter with this alien symbiote really as a villain and uh, the interesting thing with Venom is he always thought of himself as a hero and he was doing the world a favor by always persecuting Spider-Man and the fun thing is the symbiote knew that that was Peter Parker so he was able to go after his family and his, well, his wife you know mainly and he always made it very personal and this feud, boy, it went on for a long time through uh, the, the era of Todd McFarlane, who uh, later would create Spawn and start his own company. But he was he was the one who really made Spider-Man start looking spidery in the comics. Uh, but as things eventually went on, they actually uh, kind of would uh, mend fences a little bit, and so they started branching Venom off. But here, what, here's why I, I went with Alien Symbia for the main villain, because... At one point, Eddie Brock has been locked up in a prison. He's completely separated from the symbiote. And he is cellmate with a man called Cletus Cassidy, who is a notorious nutball and serial killer. And probably one of the scariest villains I swear I've ever seen Spider-Man have to face. Because the alien symbiote shows up to break Eddie Brock out to become Venom again. So they escape from, from the prison. But it leaves a spawn in there and of course that new spawn is a whole new alien that bonds with Cletus Cassidy and becomes this villain called Carnage so now you've got this crazy super powered chaos anarchy murderer going around and uh, one of the toughest storylines I had to collect all of because it went through four different titles and took the entire summer to go through the storyline Maximum Carnage which eventually ended up having a video game tie in was going on and he became one of my favorite Spider-Man villains of all time. But now here's where this also gets kind of fun, where I can tie this back in for these, the alien symbiote, of course. Uh, as, as time has progressed in here in more recent comics, uh, if you've seen any Spider-Man movies, you would be familiar with Flash Thompson, who in the high school, he's kind of a bully. Well, back in uh, around, oh, I guess late 60s, 70s, during like Vietnam War and things like that, he actually had been in the military, and they were they kind of used him as a bit of a pro-military character and kind of made him an American hero type guy in the military. Uh, in recent comic history, Flash Thompson was wounded bad in Afghanistan, saving the rest of his unit, but he lost the use of his legs. So when the, the government managed to get control of the alien symbiote and freed Eddie Brock from it, they figured, well, we can now control the alien symbiote. So they gave it to Flash Thompson, figuring since he's a good hero, he'll be able to control it, but we can monitor and we we'll always have a sonic device nearby if we need to blast that symbiote off of him. And so they actually gave Venom his own comic series, but it's now Flash Thompson as, as Venom. And how this ties in, here's where the fun part comes in. Uh, on Free Comic Book Day, they had a Guardians of the Galaxy comic where 
Tony Stark is, is is talking to the guy who's if you've seen in the trailer, Star Lord. He's talking to him and he says, "Oh, by the way, I've got a new recruit for you." And he introduces Flash Thompson as Venom and says, "Welcome. He's he's going to be perfect for your team." So Venom is actually now part of Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, unfortunately, he won't be in the new movie, but that's just an awesome little tie-in. So it was a long way to go to get there, but I thought it was cool. But overall, the villains, the alien symbiote, because it gives all the enhanced power type of thing, and because of the great villains it has created, and even has kind of a now sort of a hero character that's always that that chance that something could go wrong. Uh, Tony Stark did give Star-Lord uh, a device that said, this is a sonic device. If that symbiote starts taking control of him and gets out of hand, you use this and don't hesitate because that symbiote will kill you all. So, very interesting. Sorry about the phone call there. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of hearing that. I was like, we'll just ignore it and keep going. <laughs> well, there's there's two things I wanted to say. First, when you when you first started talking about alien uh, symbiotes, you know, the first uh, thought that I had of was the movie Alien and the and the chest huggers and everything, or the chest bursters and everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm, um, you know, I was like, well, that's a good uh, one, but no, where you went was better. And I like the fact that you just kind of glassed over um, Spider Man Three. And didn't really that too much. <laughs> yeah, that was not a good representation of Venom at all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what I wrote down earlier uh, when somebody had said the word alien, I think you had said it actually, there, Scott. I actually wrote that down at the bottom of my honorable mentions for aliens. Like that is a good villain because that's just a killing machine. So. Well, actually, actually, I toyed around. Um, you know, one of my um, honorable mentions, and I'm. I didn't. I didn't write it. I actually write it down, and now I'm blanking on his name. But it's the character from Aliens, uh, played by Paul Reiser. Oh yes, because he was definitely a villain. Especially the fact that he lets loose two facehuggers in with Ripley and uh, Newt, mm-hmm. so he can get the aliens past the um, defenses of Earth and uh, to be able to study and weaponize them. Yep. And it's too bad you. I can't remember. Does he ever get killed by an alien? Because he deserved to. Yes, he does. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, he gets trapped outside of where they've welded doors shut. You don't see it; you just hear it. Ah, it's been a while since I've seen that second movie. Okay, but it's Tracy's turn. Well, we're. I'm staying with the uh, sci-fi monster theme here, and I'm going with Audrey Junior or Audrey Two from Little Shop of Horrors. Awesome. This, of course, is the man-eating plant as seen in the 1960 film, the Roger Corman film, although I'm much more familiar with it from the 1986... uh, 1982. Well, the musical is from 1982. The film is from 1986. And the movie's better, I think. (laughs) Of course, I haven't seen the stage version, so... But the stage version apparently has a bad ending. Well, and, and you've never seen the original ending of the film as well? Oh, I've seen the, old, the Jack Nicholson black and white. I did see that yeah, one where no, it has no, a bad no. ending. The 86 film, they actually have... Oh, yeah. An original, the original ending, which is the same in the musical, which Tracy and I have saw a local production of the musical. But basically, in that, everybody dies. Everybody gets eaten by Audrey. Yep. And Audrey 2 spawns other Audrey 2s and and they basically take over the world. Yeah, I've seen that actually online. Uh, Mm. They have that footage where the giant plants are walking down the streets and trash and everything. Yep. (laughs) Like a plant Godzilla monster. (laughs) 
but it does have a does have a lot darker ending. Uh, obviously, for the the musical uh, version, the front the first film, they actually filmed that, and it went to test audiences, and the test audiences said, "No, we want a happy ending," and so they rushed back in and refilmed the ending uh, that that everybody's familiar with. Uh, instead of Audrey II taking over the world. But the original film and the uh, the musical have the, the dark ending. Right. And, of course, there is a Disney connection here because the musical was written by Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Right. Best known, at least in the Disney world, for Little, uh, little Mermaid, for Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. That's not the only Disney uh, connection as well. Wasn't Frank Oz involved in it? Well, yes, I was getting yeah, around to that. He directed it, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. Part of the larger Disney family. <laughs> the larger, expa- the expanded you, universe. You, you've heard our promo. I've heard <laughs> our promo. We mentioned Fozzie, we mentioned Yoda, we mentioned Miss Piggy. Yep. Yeah. Uh, actually, kind of a funny story with that. We actually, uh, my wife and I, when we were buying our, our plants for the year to put it on our deck, we found an Audrey 3, and it's kind of this little cactus that... Uh, well, it looks kind of like a cactus to me. It doesn't have any prickles. But as the uh, the big leaves kind of open, before they're open, it actually looks like a, a mouth in the middle of the plant before it grows and, of course, spreads into leaves. And then, of course, they'll have another bud in the middle that'll look like a mouth. Creepy. Yeah, but fun. <laughs> well, Tracy and I went to a, um, a horror movie convention one time, and there was somebody that uh, created... Uh, models, not models, but uh, characters and uh, still lives of different uh, movies. And they created an Audrey 2 from uh, the more recent movie musical, but it was in a little coffee can. I mean, it looked just like it came right out of the movie. Wow. But they, they wanted, I think they wanted like 75 or $100 on it. So I unfortunately didn't get it, but it was it looked like it was screen accurate. Wow. And it's something that, you know, I, I didn't expect to see. <laughs> yeah, that was one of those must-control temptation to purchase. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> okay, well, moving on to you then, Scott. What's your next one? Well, I'm going to stay in the sci-fi category, and I'm going to go for a uh, movie from 1970, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and General Ursus, played by James Gregory. Are you familiar with the Planet of the Apes films? I haven't seen any of them. I, I have been planning to watch like the, the newer ones, and I have. I think some of the older ones are on my list on Netflix of movies that I'm going to watch. <laughs> oh, I, I have I'm a, a long big, list of I need to watch these movies kind of things. I'm a big fan of uh, of the Planet of the Apes films, the originals. The, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes is the second film uh, in, I think there's five of them uh, originally that were made. Um, the first one was in 68, and you know, uh, the other one's through the 70s. Uh, the character of General Ursus, he is the leader of the guerrillas, and he leads an uprising of guerrillas against a couple of humans that have crash-landed. Um, in the first film, um, you've got Charlton Heston playing uh, Taylor. Uh, at the end of that film, he... You know the, the big spoiler ending where you see the Statue of Liberty, but he goes off with Nova, his um, girlfriend, who was uh, from that time. Well, 
in the beginning of this film, another uh, spaceship from Earth crashes from Earth's past, and another astronaut who's sent there to rescue him or to find out what happened to him, and he runs into Nova. Um, he can't find Taylor right away, but Nova is wearing Taylor's dog tags, so he knows that um, the Taylor, he's in the right place to find Taylor. They've disappeared into what's called the Forbidden Zone. The Forbidden Zone area is this place where uh, fire will just appear. Um, it's kind of a, a, a desolate area. Uh, it's all projection, and all the, the apes are really scared to go into this area. Now, General Ursus captures um, astronaut Brent and Nova, and instead of, you know, he tries to interrogate them a little bit, but at one point he just ends up sending them out for uh, target practice. He basically sends them out and has some of his men try to track him down just to kill them. So that's, that's he's always been one of my favorite um, uh, characters. And w- when I first saw it, you know, he's got all this gorilla makeup on, so it's really hard to tell who, who he is. Now, I don't know if you ever watched the show Barney Miller. Uh, I vaguely remembered I was really, really young when that show was out. <laughs> There's a recurring character on there the, of this inspector that would show up every once in a while. And that's also played by James Gregory. And when I realized that, you know, this this older inspector who's kind of a, a, a kind guy, he's a little off, a little, um, little, not crazy, but just kind of a little off level. And then to see him play this, you know, really evil General Ursus character, you know, it was like seeing Paul Reiser in Aliens. You know, <laughs> you see a, a comedian playing a bad guy and playing it really well. So I, I had... I was really impressed with the acting chops of uh, of James Gregory. Uh, anybody else uh, thinking the fire swamp there when you were talking about the random fires popping up? <laughs> I was waiting for you to mention the ROSs. Yes. <laughs> I don't believe they really exist. Oh, of course not. <laughs> Inconceivable. You keep using this word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Okay, well, moving on. <laughs> if anybody didn't get that reference, then uh, I don't know what they're doing listening to this show. <laughs> so, <okay. I> <laughs> All right, I'm going to move into the world of literature. Now, if I was to flat out to say who this villain is, it would already conjure up an image in your head of what everybody seems to think this character is all about. Uh, but I don't know how many people who would know the, know of the character know its roots in, in, in classic literature. And it's, and it's a very gothic horror story, if you ever read the book. But okay, let's think of this man here. Uh, he he's Where we first hear of some of his early his, history, he's living in Persia. And uh, when you get his option, he is an albino. Uh, very pale skin, his eyes are red, as you see like an albino mice. He's got very red eyes. Uh, very deep inset sockets, very high cheekbones, very thin face. So his face kind of resembles a skull, very kind of frightening visage. But he's also a sadistic genius. What he does in Persia is he works for a uh, uh, a ruler of some sort there and creates this maze full of, of traps to kill anyone who, who might be trying to get in to assassinate him. Uh, so now this man, of course, he's got all the... Uh, these riches and all these different things about anything he could win in Persia except for he uh, he has this obsession with women and he, he doesn't quite understand love because he's sadistic and he's always looking out for his own ends and he kind of gets obsessed with uh, 
uh, someone in the ruler's family. I don't remember this specific person, but uh, it becomes kind of dangerous, and she ends up killed from the process. So he flees Persia, not knowing that he is also being pursued by a character who will simply be called the Persian throughout the rest of the story. But that's just backstory that you actually learn later. Uh, well, what this man did, his name's Eric. He goes, he's got, still got all his money. He loves music. So he goes to Paris and builds an opera house and rigs up this opera house with all of his little secret passages, all of his potential death, death traps that he puts around a little home island that he builds subterraneanly with a large moat. Now, does anybody know who this character is? I have a guess. You have a guess? What do you think? The Phantom of the Opera? Exactly. When you read this book, you find one of the most frightening villains. I mean, if, if you read the book of Dracula, Dracula, as soon as he's discovered, he runs for his life, and I was kind of disappointed in him. But the Phantom is always one step ahead of everyone, and everyone is always in constant danger of him because he's brilliant. He, he would make them a, a great James Bond villain because of his ability to make death traps. But, uh, like, the... Now, granted, I love the music Andrew Lloyd Webber did. And I have seen the uh, I, uh, a video that Netflix has of uh, a London costume performance of the show. And it is a good show, but it doesn't quite capture who this character really is because they wanted it's like they wanted to make it this romantic gothic story. He's really not a romantic character because he doesn't understand love, but he does have a sort of lustful obsession. And so he will stalk and kidnap. And so Christine is really in danger the whole time, but she's, she's trying to have a bit of pity on him throughout the course of things. But... Uh, the mask that uh, is kind of a famous thing is actually a full-face mask, and he only wears it for Christine to kind of hide his identity. When he's actually wanting to... Oh, he's pretty brassy, really. Uh, with, when the new owners come in to, to uh, run the opera house, he comes in, bold as brass, full skull face, because he knows it frightens everybody, and they know he knows that they don't know if he's alive or a ghost. And he goes and he lays out his list of, all right, here is how my theater is to be run. I have my own little booth over here. You will leave my pay up here. Here's how, here's how my checks will always be, you know, because you're going to pay me to uh, to help you with this opera house. Really, you're paying him to make sure he doesn't uh, kill someone because uh, he is pretty much a mass murderer and his body count gets up pretty high. Um uh, the closest thing I've seen to it is there was this really terrible movie with uh, Robert England, famous for being Freddy Krueger, where they did a family opera with him, and it's pretty grisly, but at least they tried to make him more of a villain again, but it doesn't follow the book either. But throughout this whole his whole story, he is always one step ahead of both the owners, he's one step ahead of Raoul, which is a much more interesting character. He's now this piquant, account. he'd grown up with Christine, uh, uh, they kind of learned things together, they were great friends, and they kind of get reunited. Uh, but Raul is, you kind of follow the story from his perspective because suddenly Christine vanishes, nobody knows what's happened. Raul is, of course, very concerned, trying to figure out what, what has happened. Finally, the Phantom lets Christine go after like a month. And so, well, where have you been? So, well, I don't want to talk about it, uh, but uh, I'm fine now. That's just, you know, I've got work to do. And, and but it's this, all this intrigue and all these kind of scary kind of moments. Even where one point where Raul's kind of getting too close to things, Raul is in a, a kind of a fine lavish motel or whatever. You know, well, motel's not the right word, but uh, he's living in Paris and he's in kind of his room. And in the middle of the night, he thinks he hears something, and he wakes up and he looks, and all he can see in front of him is these two glowing red dots which you've already learned throughout the book described is that as the eyes, of course, of the Phantom. His eyes just seem to burn red, but he realized he can get to his room, and it's almost like that threat, like, I can kill you anytime I want, so you better back off. 
But finally, after Raul meets the Persian and learns the identity that this well, this is a human, it becomes this interesting chase through these dungeons and through these death traps of trying to uh, solve the whole thing uh, and try to rescue Christine, finally from this guy, where actually Christine manages to kind of save the Phantom from himself by showing him that, okay, you're having this obsession because you don't really feel like you've ever gotten love or anything, but you don't understand what love is because you're not looking out for someone else else's interests. You are looking out for yourself. And when she when she chooses to stay with the family rather than have Raul murdered right there, he kind of starts to see, oh, wait a minute. So this is something new to me. So this, it's about giving of yourself. And so the Phantom actually... He, he, since no one knows his true name, he actually goes into hiding, and there's actually kind of a an ending of the book where you see him actually come back, and he's been living a normal life with his regular face revealed, and he's learned how to be a better person as long as no one ever finds out about his past, you know? But it's kind of this interesting thing, but he's the scariest thing you'll ever read, I swear. So the, the whole thing, but after having gone through the book, when I saw the movie adaption they did of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, I was annoyed. Because they made him like, oh, pity me, sad me. And they came up with an extra story of him being a child locked in a cage in a freak show, which was not in the books. It's like, yeah, you're, you're kind of making him pitiable. They we're trying to make this a romantic kind of thing that you're kind of missing the point that this guy is a serial killer. And he's brilliant and dangerous and very, very interesting in that case of a villain. So, but yeah, that was a very long-winded explanation, but... I kind of noticed that, like most people, you mentioned Fan of the Opera, their mind goes Andrew Lloyd Webber, and yes, it's a good show, but it doesn't quite represent everything what that character's like. Although the the one I saw on Netflix with the London cast, I think was a lot better at bringing about and showing the fear Christine has of him, realizing that this guy is you know, kind of sadistic, that she didn't know at first that, oh, this, this weird teacher is teaching me how to sing better, and then suddenly realized that this is the guy that's been running around killing everybody, you know. So, but yeah, I still recommend at least the, the Netflix uh, one that you can find. It's a, it's a London cast. It was an anniversary recording, uh, and even at the end has uh, uh, Sarah Brightman come out and perform a song actually with uh, like five of the different Phantoms that have played them in London. So, very interesting. But definitely read the book. It's much better. Now, when you when you first said that you know most people go to the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, that's not where I go when I think of Phantom of the Opera. Did you think of the Lon Chaney? Yes, I do. <laughs> I want to see that one. I haven't seen it yet. I think it's on Netflix, though. Uh, I know that I, uh, they probably have the disc. I don't know if it's streaming or not. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. But I wonder if it's on archive.org, if it's old be. enough. might be there, too. Well, I actually go to a movie I saw as a child at the drive-in called Phantom, Phantom of, of the, the Paradise. Paradise. What? Which is a rock and roll version of the Phantom of the Opera. I'm not sure I can recommend it. Who stars in that? Is that? Um, I think it's Paul Williams. I think it is Paul Williams. Yes. Oh well, that would actually make it kind of worth listening to the music then. Yeah, the music is, is not half bad. It, it's a movie that I saw a long time ago as well. But it, it's yeah, a rock and roll version of of the Andrew Lloyd Webber sto- version of. Phantom. Well, it came out before Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, did it? Yeah. yeah. Andrew Lloyd so. Webber, I think, came out in the early 80s. Uh, yep. But, but I've seen a, a weird version. There was one, I remember one Halloween when I was a kid, they were showing a version of Phantom of the Opera where it was the old thing where he's supposed to have had acid thrown in his face and he was this this struggling songwriter and it was so tragic he'd had acid thrown in his face and he was just trying to get revenge against the people who had done it and they had it where he's wearing this red outfit the entire time. 
And it's like, this is not even resembling anything. <laughs> now, my problem with the Phantom of the Para- Phantom of the Paradise is I keep mixing it up with Kiss meets the Phantom. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> there was a made-for-TV movie back when, uh, you know, maybe late 70s when Kiss was huge. And in the film, Kiss goes to perform at this amusement park. And I don't remember who plays the, the villain, but he's a um, – basically, he's creating animatronic characters that can come to life, and Kiss ends up having to fight them. <laughs> it's basically a live-action Scooby-Doo, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's basically a live-action Scooby-Doo. And if you're familiar with, with Kiss, uh, Ace Freely – all of his lines are dubbed because he was too gone to be able to perform. Oh, I thought it would be because there's too much of his list and everything that we get tired of hearing him talk. So, <laughs> I don't do a very good Ace Freely thing, but no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Ace. It was it's uh, Peter Chris. Peter Chris. Yes. See, I think he's the drummer, right? Had the uh, the whiskers. Yeah, he was the cat. The cat guy. Yeah. I have some familiarity with Kiss. <laughs> Yeah, if if you're a fan of it, it it is, it is bad. It is if you're a fan of Kiss, the film is bad, but it's worth a watch just for how bad it is. I, I think can't it hear was my on phone ringing in the background now. <laughs> I'll just ignore it. I think it was on one of those Kiss anthology DVD sets that came out a couple of years ago. I think we have a copy of it somewhere. <laughs> Oh, my. Well, <laughs> moving on from that one, if we can, what's Tracy got next? Well, I'm going to tie back into my previous choice a little bit and cite Ursula as my next villain of choice, who, of course, is from The Little Mermaid, 1989. Howard Ashman, Alan Menken providing the songs. And Pat Carroll was the actress who both voiced and sang Ursula. And yes. yeah, you know, you were doing some research on this earlier. Tell everybody who this part was written for. The script was originally written for B. Arthur to play <laughs> Ursula, which I can kind of see the acting. I don't know if I've ever heard her sing. I don't think I want to care to see her sing. Yeah. I don't know. She might have been good. <laughs> she might have been. I'll. I'll I'll keep an open mind there. But then also Charlotte Ray was considered for the role at one point, who, if you remember the facts of life, she was kind of the den mother for that show. And she was on different strokes. She was the maid in the first season. That's right. That's right. Which, if anybody feels like checking my archives, it's like, oh, what was it? Sixth episode, I think. We actually did a, a thing made for TV is what we titled that episode where you can actually hear about her and a lot of other maids that were back in the 80s, etc. But anyways, moving on. Fun. <laughs> so, yeah, with, with Ursula, again, I just like her personality and the fact that she tries to come off as being beneficial to the community. You know, she, she helps grant these people wishes and... You know, well, sometimes they, they just can't come through with what they promised me, and I'm, I'm afraid I had to rake them across the coals. She cheats. <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. But all good villains do. Oh, yes. Oh, that's a good choice. I hadn't thought of her, but yeah, she was one of my favorites, too. Okay, well, I guess we're, we're moving on to, the, to Scott's next. Well, 
uh, as most uh, as, as already been said, we're from a Disney podcast, and so Tracy went with a Disney one. My next one, I'm going to go with a Disney one too. But it's from one of their live action films from 1979, The Black Hole. And I'm going to go with Dr. Hans Reinhardt, played by Maximilian Maximilian Schell. Now, have you ever seen this film? I think I saw it once when I was a kid, and if, if memory serves, he was he was kind of reminded me of like Captain Nemo a little bit, except for he was madly forcing his entire ship and crew to go through the black hole just to see what would happen. If I remember correctly, uh, roughly that yes, uh, he was trying to find out what was on the other side of the black hole. There was a rebellion or from his crew and. The way he forces his um, crew is he basically turns them all into cyborgs, but not you know that this is not by choice. He just wires them into all of his robots that are running the ship. And so when you first meet him in the film, when the uh, when the, um, the the good ship, I think it's the Palomino, shows up, and they they come across and board, and, and you meet. Um, Excuse me. When you meet um, Dr. Heinz Reinhardt, he's got like this army of robots and they're kind of running the ship. And so you get the impression that uh, he's there by himself doing his research and he's got all of these robots. But as the course of the film goes on, you find out that it was a human crew that he's basically done away with and turned into robots because they wouldn't follow his orders. It has one really big, scary robot, I remember. You know, it's, yeah. Vincent? No, Vincent's not a scary robot. Oh, that's robot. right. Sorry. Yeah, Vincent was kind of the cute Vincent R2-D2 was a good guy. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think he was, wasn't he? I think it was oh, called who's... Maximilian, actually. Wasn't the Yes. Oh, well, that's right. Yeah. yeah. No, I was trying to remember. Like the weird Knight Rider ice or whatever. <laughs> I was trying to remember who voiced Vincent. It was the guy from um, Dr. Strangelove that rode the bomb down. You've got the IMDb up. Oh. Just, I'm blanking on his name, too. That is something. I should probably have IMDb up. <laughs> Tim, <laughs> Tim's line was all on it on his show, and I, were, uh, I was no. like, oh, what is that guy's name? He would, boom, pull it up right quick. No, Vincent was Roddy McDowell. That's, and Bob. I was it was, I knew the name. Yep. Yeah. And Bob, which was another... Um, was voiced by Slim Pickens. That's the guy from um, Doctor Strangelove. He was in a lot of restaurants too. And <laughs> yes, he was. And even in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> what in the wild, wild world of sports is going on here? We, we we just picked up the 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 was it twenty fifth anniversary Blu-ray thirtieth oh, thirtieth, and uh, there's you know the campfire scene from Blazing Saddles. <laughs> there's an as one of the bonus things, there's an edited version of that that was cuts out the sound. Yeah, there's effects. it's like no sound at all. So you just Aww. see them all kind of moving around, and <laughs> <laughs> which makes the scene almost funnier. <laughs> it's like what's going on? <laughs> yeah, so if you'd never seen the movie before, that scene wouldn't make any sense at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, oh my goodness! Oh. Yeah, um, if you haven't seen The Black Hole, it's basically was Disney's first response towards Star Wars, because Star Wars had come out just a couple of years before. Yeah. And it's a very dark Disney film. I had bedsheets of it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
Those are probably worth some money today if you still had them. Oh, if I only had, I don't know whatever became of them. Uh, cause I just remember when we, I was, when I was really little, we had bed sheets and my brother and I both. They were twin sized bed sheets and everything that I didn't know anything about the movie at that point and everything. I went out cause I was that little and it wasn't until, uh, oh, maybe I was around 10 or 11, I think, when I saw the movie. So. I'm going to have to go and find that movie and watch it again because it's been a long time. But I, I did, whenever I, I finally got to see 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Captain Nemo did remind me of that uh, that guy who was going through the you know, the villain you're mentioning. Oh, yeah, Dr. Name. Hans Reinhardt. Yeah. yeah I, that similarity. I, I thought about Nemo for a second for this, this uh, retrospective of villains, but I'm not sure he's really a villain. Yeah, because a lot of stuff he says makes sense, and you kind of get what he's doing. But <laughs> yeah. He's more a misunderstood genius in my mind. Yeah. yeah. The squid is more of a villain than he is. Yeah. Great movie. Great movie. Yes. Very. We actually got to see that on a Disney cruise. So it's just something uh, (laughs) meta about being on a cruise ship watching 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah. (laughs) Especially if somebody got honoring, if you had a window in the room, had like this giant tentacle they just shoved through the window and wave it around. (laughs) I would be the one that would do that. (laughs) Yes. Unfortunately, there was no windows in the theater, but that would have been funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. See how many people going, ah! So... Man, the 3D in here is really good. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, that's really all the time we have for this half of the conversation. I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, We had a lot of fun. We didn't really stray too far off topic, so we kept pretty much talking about villains of some sort throughout the entire thing. But I had a lot of fun talking to them, and I hope you enjoyed listening because next week I'm going to play the second half of this, and also I am planning to have a review of the new Tom Cruise film, Edge of Tomorrow, which is pretty much sci-fi war version of Groundhog Day, (laughs) which I I think it looks like fun. So I'm hoping I will enjoy it and have a good review next week, uh, despite having a bad review of Maleficent this week. But I would like to take this time to remind you that if you go to NeverlandPodcast.com and under the header find FOTM, you click there and you'll get a page talking about my Kickstarter project. Uh, And there's even a link to go to my Kickstarter project where I am going to attempt to make a DVD of the Friends of the Magic meet that Paul Berry holds over in Disneyland. So I will go and try to hit all the meets and videotape them. Also get a lot of audio that I can share here on the podcast. And then, of course, the DVD will be made available to all of those who pledge and choose to have that DVD. Now, there is no obligation for pledging unless we hit our goal. And then, actually, then it will go through your PayPal or your Amazon account or however uh, and, and, and you will then pay it. But really, you have nothing to lose by at least coming and pledging and trying to get one of the wonderful items I have as reward. Uh, and it would all pay off to you. You will be the ones enjoying really the benefits of T-shirts, DVDs, and the audio that I can present to you right here on the Neverland Podcast. So I would really appreciate your support. Uh, we'll end up talking a little bit about that with uh, Tracy and Scott next week as well. You'll hear uh, as I talk to them about the, the event because they are going to be there as well. And so I will be able to interact with them again and also Paul Barry again. Uh, I also do want to apologize for the, the white noise that was coming through with their microphone. Um, I really don't know how I could have reduced that or gotten rid of it at all. 
Uh, I didn't even was not aware that it was coming through on a recording until I listened to the recording later because I wasn't hearing all that white noise while I was actually talking to them. So um, I do apologize for that. That might but it might have gotten a little bit of annoying coming through your uh, your right channel there. Uh, but it'll be unfortunately that way probably next week as well. Uh, but I would like to remind you that you can email us at podcast at neverlandpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at neverlandpcast and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash neverlandpodcast. Come like us, follow us, and all kinds of different things. And make sure you share the links with your friends, share them with your enemies, share them with your family. Uh, let them know how much fun you're having listening to this show because we're going only, only going to continue to have this much fun. And maybe next week I'll also have a little bit more news for you than just one thing about Thanos, but that was a really good cool piece of news in my book uh my internet appears to be coming back online i don't know why it went down uh but it's kind of too late for me to do anything about it now other than to get this thing uploaded and ready for you to listen to what you're doing right now so we're reminding you once again though to keep the, your pixie in your pocket so you can sprinkle a little bit a little bit of that pixie dust whenever you find yourself watching a terrible movie or your internet connection is down you can sprinkle it on yourself get some happy happy thoughts and don't forget to sprinkle it on the people around you and share that joy and happiness with other people. Until next time, God bless. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.